It's a cult Disney with oral hygiene featuring the paranoid American. This week, Snow White and the Seven Doors. Welcome to Oral Hygiene. We are right in the midst of our um, Occult Disney series. This is Matt here with us today. Coming back is Thomas Thomas Gorenz, the paranoid American. Good evening to you. Good evening. Thank you. Good morning to me. Yeah. Gee, I should have said this before I, I start recording, but is, is this episode one or two? <laughs> uh, this this definitely counts as two. Okay. Chrono- this episode two. Chronologically, it's one, but... Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. This is our, Disney chron- chronology. That's true. It's our second time recording. But like you said, Fantasia is kind of like the spell that was cast for Disney up to like the present, basically. So this is it's, I don't it's know. what brought the Disney universe into being into an yeah. actual universe that exists today. Right. Where uh, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves is kind of like, well, that's the groundbreaker. That's the icebreaker, I guess, going through the North Pole or whatever. <laughs> so. <laughs> Yeah, so so I mean, I think that he really um, Disney started making a whole lot of waves when he did these little shorts that were going before movies. Um, the, like the Steamboat Willie is the one that gets um, the most mentions. Usually, it was kind of like a Nickelodeon style uh, animation, but that one in particular because it had synchronized music, synchronized sound effects. When they actually played it, sometimes before theaters, they might actually have it being projected with like a live orchestra and Walt himself would do the sound effects and the voices for it. Um, and they, you know, they would travel around doing this. It wasn't like they canned it and sent it out to the theaters. So to see this in person and to see how it worked out, uh, you know, it, it made a big impression on people. And this was the building blocks to where Snow White became his first, you know, feature length movie. And that's why Snow White is so important because it was the very first feature length Disney production. Have you, uh, just out of curiosity, have you ever seen a, uh, a live musical rendition with a movie uh when i was a, a kid it's been over 20 years but yeah yeah i absolutely have and it's it's a whole different way of experiencing it yeah um i i had a, i got to see a few as an adult and it is quite an experience i saw what it was it a metropolis with the alloy orchestra or something kind of doing oh like that sounds percussion. that sounds real cool and then uh, also real cool is um alexander well, Nez- metropolis is a silent movie right like there's not even any dialogue so it's all Correct. orchestra yeah yeah there is an actual score for that movie which is on the uh, which wasn't discovered till about 15 years ago so when i saw the alloy orchestra doing this i think they hadn't rediscovered the actual score yet um, oh, i didn't even know that i didn't know that they discovered the original score yeah and like half of the rest of the movie uh we were that one has some wild edits so you can basically watch metropolis correctly now uh even on youtube so um and then i saw uh alexander nevsky with the atlanta symphony orchestra and that was mind-blowing because yeah um if, if you watch that movie it's a real can soviet era soundtrack so having it opened up with the full orchestra was pretty amazing <laughs> but um that's that's pretty cool and, and here in orlando they do a lot of um they'll do like star wars orchestras where they'll play certain scenes they do a lot with video games i think there was a a a certain zelda games where like the full orchestra would come in and replay like some of the greatest hits from like the video games 
along yeah. you know with along with some animations and things going on in the background yeah in japan you'll regularly see like final fantasy concerts or you know, <laughs> that sounds really cool actually man <laughs> like with major orchestras playing the final fantasy music it's not like a novelty orchestra so <laughs> um i was uh, i guess we should start talking about snow white here I, I i did notice some of the music is quite well done in the background i mean well it's you know has a standard in it um but the other thing that really struck me was how this is basically a series of shorts like there, there's a narrative which we're going to definitely talk about, but um, there's some very draggy parts of the movie. Like they weren't quite sure how to make this feature length yet. I think. Oh yeah, I'm I'm interested to to hear your thoughts on that. Um, well, some of the because I'm thinking too that for the time with how novel this was, like I don't I doubt it dragged when it first came out. It was like an absolute marvel to everyone watching it. So watching it a hundred years later, almost um it's you know we we can can be a lot more critical of it so i'm i'm interested to see which parts you thought dragged um mostly probably snow white cleaning the house and and the dwarves having their um singing um what their their evening song and dance session i guess which you could see oh i see where this could be like a a cute six minute short from 1936 or something you know okay the, honestly, the the cleaning aspect is one of the uh, the cool kind of occult aspects of this. So okay, maybe once good, we good. start talking about like all of the the symbolism, you can you can almost you know put into it if you like really want to search deep. But it makes it fairly more interesting than her just you know doing chores. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's why we're here doing this. And um, this this is a good one. I mean, just to be honest, uh, for the pre-war Disney movies, this is my least favorite, though. Really, I do, do find the animation most impressive. Like Fantasia definitely has like, you know, more impressive animation. But this just has like that, you know, elbow grease, spit and polish look to it. You like it, it doesn't look like this was easy to do, you know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I, I mean, they were figuring stuff out uh, a lot. And, um, you know, prior to this, the the main you, you had a note when we were talking back and forth before about rotoscoping. So that's. I guess that might be a good thing to bring up here because that was sort of like the hinge on how Snow White came together. It's exact. Every time you see Snow White, it's 100% rotoscoped. Same with the prince. Um, some of the, the queen, not necessarily always, especially when it's not the witch, but every single frame with Snow White and every frame with the, the prince are all rotoscoped. And rotoscoping started with Max Fleischer, um, who actually invented it in his company, and which the main reason I'm bringing this up is because Max Fleischer actually beat Disney to the punch. He made his own Snow White for Paramount. Um, but this was like four or five years before Disney Snow White came out. And his wasn't a feature length. It was, you know, I think it was like six to ten minutes or something like that. But it used the exact same rotoscoping technique that later went on to be used, you know, even modern day, essentially. Uh, even as far as using some of the same animators that worked on Snow White, ended up working on Snow White with Walt Disney. Yeah, it's kind of, oh, oh with the Fleischer one. Yeah, that's interesting. Because uh, I have found it interesting, and me not knowing that much about animation, I've seen some things on YouTube's where, YouTube where they will show you where the um, animatic or whatever has been reused in modable movies. So you'll see it in Peter Pan. Because it's the such a lot of, of work, man. It yeah. is a lot of work to to trace all of those frames uh, bit by bit. And they probably already had some of like the original materials. So it was a lot easier to just kind of 
you know, add some details or change out facial expressions and reuse the same um, basic frames. Because so if, if you're not familiar with how rotoscope works, the, a really, really simple, oversimplified version is that you can either you can play back a video and the video kind of gets projected on like a tracing board, essentially. So if you've ever seen like a like a, um, a light board where you can turn the light on and it lets you trace through it. You're basically doing that, but you're tracing every single frame of video bit by bit. Um, that's essentially what rotoscoping is. So one of the the famous ones again came from Snow White, Max Fleischer. It was a, it was a Betty Boop version of Snow White, and there's a song with Cab Calloway called Saint James Infirmary. Do you, do you know which clip I'm talking about, by the way? Yo, I know these clips because I send them to people and sometimes worry that they're going to think I'm racist or something. Well, so well, <laughs> no. I'll be dead. You so, rascal use my favorite. So <laughs> a, lot of people, a lot of people don't realize that that really famous Cab Calloway with like the ghost um, singing St. James Infirmary and doing this like classic Cab Calloway dance. That's from the Max Fleischer Snow White. It's after Snow White dies. She goes into the underworld. And that's why Cab Calloway is this ghost because he's dancing and it's the underworld of Snow White. And at the conclusion of that, she wakes back up and it's kind of like the familiar endings. Okay. Um, but anyways, I'm, the, the reason I'm mentioning that is because that rotoscope is probably one of the most famous and well done to this day, even rotoscopes of Cab Calloway dancing. Um, and that's the exact same technology that we would use today in rotoscoping. It's just that back then you were actually tracing you know the outline and every individual body part frame by frame the way that you kind of do rotoscoping now if you're not using ai or some special plugin is you're kind of making like these digital shapes and then making those shapes fit in with each you know different part of like the body but it's it's really essentially the same the same sort of technology just you know we've got helpers to do it but it's the same process yeah, I, I guess you'd now be like putting like the like dots on people and digitally tracing the rotoscoping. <laughs> That's part of it. Or you would um, like the, the way that you would do it now is you've got like LIDAR cameras or ones that can detect 3D. So even as someone's moving around, you can detect from 3D space where their edges are. So you don't have to sit there and actually draw the edge outline. And then there's all sorts of like AI and plugins that can determine like the, the depth of different pixels just based on the lighting and the context of the scene to where you don't even need like special 3D cameras, you know, just like the AI and algorithms can do that for you. But you don't get that same sort of fluid rotoscopy look. Like there's just something very, um, you know, it's, it's almost like an uncanny valley aspect to it to where you're watching Snow White. You can clearly tell the difference between one of the little um, elves, you know, or the, the worker gnomes like moving around versus Snow White moving around. It's just night and day difference and like the fluidity of it. Now, this is something weird I heard um, just yesterday. And, and I, I guess uh, Snow White has some three plane camera work, so it might apply to Snow White as well. It was uh, the people who just did the re the director's edition of Star Trek, the motion picture. And one of those producers said recently there's a theory that um, film doesn't just capture the image. It's not just photographic, but actual, you know, old school analog film emulsion also includes light field information. So theoretically, if we were able to translate that, you could watch like Casablanca in true 3D. <laughs> That's interesting. And I don't doubt it. I mean, especially between um, any sort of extra, I'll call that like meta information, right? If there's like some light field information you could pass that 
into some kind of AI algorithm that's already doing the, the depth perception just based on the regular pixels, add in the extra meta, and it gets even you know more advanced and, and more specific. So, I mean, it's not going to be too long before we're going to be able to, you're not just going to like watch Snow White, you're going to be able to like remix it somehow with like your other favorite Disney movies or, you know, insert it into like a TV show. I mean, that sounds crazy, but it, I really do feel like that's kind of the next thing is that you turn on Netflix and it's not showing you the the different, you know, pre-made TVs and movies that you're used to. It's like, you know, here's a completely um, original generated real-time thing with all your favorite characters and plot points you know custom tailored to you essentially that, that said the algorithms aren't tight enough yet because uh you i went on youtube last night you know I, I don't like to eat dinner when i'm taking notes so i, I waited to finish no white went on youtube i was like oh come on youtube i don't want to see any of this stuff <laughs> well, well i mean picky. i think the algorithms are fine it's just that the algorithms are being used to like train you what you want to watch not necessarily cater to your taste you know what i mean it's like yeah. the, the algorithms looking at you and being like oh he's still not learning you know this is what we want you to watch <laughs> that that might be it actually so um <laughs> um anyway that was kind of my segue to the the magic mirror being a, a 2d 3d sort of image well I, we don't know if it's 3d it just in this 2d animated film it, the magic mirror just comes across as 3d ish <laughs> Might be the menu screen on the Blu-ray as well. <laughs> well, I mean, if, if we're going to start getting to like the symbolism here, it doesn't really matter the 2D, 3D aspect of it, unless you want to get real, you know, metaphorical on, um, you know, like the, the whole entire display of, of movie. But the Magic Mirror is a great place to start because, again, this being the very first feature length Disney movie, it almost opens up on this sort of astrological mirror with a witch walking up like the first feature length Disney movie could have been about anything at all. You know, it could have been a Looney Tunes style thing. Um, it could have been, you know, name any other cartoon that came out even in the same era. Um, it was just kind of cool and specifically a cult esoteric, you know, hence why we're talking about it, but that it, it really just opens up on this, this astrological plane and a witch kind of talking out into this void. It's also sort of, uh, an interesting aspect here because she talks to the mirror because she wants to get reconfirmation about, you know, how popular and how good looking she is. Um, and it's, it's impossible to not draw this correlation to like the witch is holding up her iPhone and posting on Instagram or something. And then like refreshing it to see, you know, am I the fairest one of them all? Am I getting the most likes or people complimenting me on my looks? Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I just absolutely love this movie modern day for that reason. Yeah, and uh, it's probably been about eight years since I've seen this. At that point, seeing it an awful lot because my daughter was three years old at the time. But watching it this time, you know, since then, I've done most of my occult reading and things like that. And yeah, I'm like, whoa, that is a full-blown Zodiac there. Okay. <laughs> and uh, just as a real-world effect, I mean, this is one of the chief uh, Mandela effect examples <laughs> with it being magic mirror on the wall. Maybe it's because of the Star Trek episode. Everybody wants to say mirror, mirror, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I knew you were going to say that. that. That is one of the most commonly cited, um, you know, phrases for what was it called? The, the Mandela effect where like the false memories. There's right. a lot of people apparently think that it was mirror, mirror on the wall. Um, and I'm sure that probably was repeated somewhere at some point. I don't know if it was a, a commercial or a retelling or maybe it was like on a TV show someone you know like full house or something they were you know um 
they were reading it to like the kids or something. It had to come from somewhere because I know for a fact that I heard mirror, mirror on the wall recited when I was younger. Uh, but yeah, that's, it's not in the movie. It was never in the movie unless you, you, you uh, prescribe to the alternate dimensions of Mandela effect. Yeah. The, the one that I just could never get past. Cause I can, I can admit uh, it's, it's magic mirror. Sure. Why not? But uh, it's, it's the, the Berenstain bears is the one oh. I can't get past. <laughs> yeah. Why is that the one that everyone seems to be stuck on? Because, <laughs> because we all know it always was stain, but you just look at that and it's got, even now it's like stain. Oh, no, it's stain. They have a stain on them. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yeah, that, that's the one that always gets me, but yeah. Yeah. Um, Cause I, I, I know sometimes I'm just like, Sometimes you think, oh, how am I comparing with all the people I went to high school with, right? I mean, that's what we all do with Facebook or whatever. I, I avoid liking things on Facebook, to be honest. I, um, if I want to interact, I will leave a comment. <laughs> but I just never putting a little, you know, I hate the, the hugging the heart thing. Like, I don't even know what that means exactly. <laughs> the yeah, I, I got to admit, I haven't been on Facebook in over a decade just because I forgot my password at some point <laughs> and they wanted me to like upload my, you know, my driver's license and all kinds of information to get back in. And I just kind of gave up, which is yeah, a, it, a little bit of like a, a suicidal move for when you want to publish, you know, like a, a content <laughs> publisher. So I might have to hop back on at, at some point, but I've, I really feel like I'm not missing a whole lot from being on Facebook. No, my main reason for being there at this point is uh, mostly for Messenger because that's just my main communication tool with several of my regular podcast guests. So <laughs> I sort of need it for that, if nothing else. But um, yeah, I, I guess um, the one the thing that really I guess blew my mind is the first scene with Snow White never made sense to me. So um, your explanation makes an awful lot of sense if you would like to share that with the audience. Uh, yeah so so yeah so when we very first see snow white um i think that she starts singing i don't even think she's she's talking at first and it's this whole song about if you wish into a well and i'm not gonna i'm not gonna sing it and recite it for (laughs) uh just for your ears sake and also you know copyright sake or whatever but the whole premise is that if you say something into a well and you hear it back then it means your dreams can come true. And as she's singing this, the well kind of like sings back to her. And I do want to point out when I was younger, it bugged me. And even rewatching it bugged me still that like certain things she says don't get echoed back to her. And that always felt really creepy. Like, <laughs> like there's this weird echo physics where like it only repeats certain things that you say and not others. But anyways, the, the premise here is that Snow White is... Uh, reciting magic she's talking about making wishes into a well and what is if you want to break down kind of like the core elements of magic it's essentially um will and intent no matter what your ritual is or what your spell or what words you come up with if you just have the intent behind it then technically that can be you know magic especially if it has some kind of effect so here we've got snow white that's sending these magical um spells into this bottomless well And when the well repeats these things, um, it essentially is like granting her these wishes. It's it's manifesting reality from these verbal commands that she's sending down into it. And these things that she's wishing for, she wants to find uh, a Prince Charming, essentially. And as she's doing this, a prince literally manifests in the movie and he starts riding over to her. And as soon as she sees him, 
uh, you know, she in the movie you're watching it and you're like, oh, you know, this this uh, this young virgin maid is obviously freaked out because now there's like a guy here and she's embarrassed, maybe. Um, but another way to interpret this is that she's kind of shocked at how this power like she actually just manifested reality by shouting spells into this endless well. And it actually came true. And she was so surprised that this worked that she runs into the castle and kind of like hides from the prince, but in effect is hiding from her own power. Yeah, that's the hiding from your own power. Because before I'm just like, what? I mean, that doesn't make any sense. But if, you know, you make an attempt like that and get instant results, yeah, it's probably going to flip you out, especially when they're like that major. But that makes me kind of wonder. I mean, you know, Prince Charming in this movie, is, is it Prince Charming? The Prince, whatever. Um, you know, he's so bland which always bugged me but now i'm like well he's not real he's like an egregore or something well yeah he's he's male energy he just represents the male energy um that come and that again like at at the very end of the movie we sort of have this this passive feminine energy that's locked away in this golden glass coffin um and this you could also say this is like the the whole entire premise of snow white if you could break it down into just like one particular theme it's it's nature magic it's humanity combining with nature magic and humanity itself coming out of that with more knowledge than they've ever had before but also infusing this sort of like human spirit into nature itself it's it's this very symbiotic relationship between the two it's not like humanity is a virus on nature or it's nature versus human it's not that sort of um antagonistic story here it's it's really like an embracing of the the two different things yeah i almost feel to a certain degree that the most human character here is the evil queen it's the only one that has motivations that make sense <laughs> i mean it's 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 you know envy and all of that sort of stuff but yeah snow white well, she, she's the polar the opposite to snow white essentially like she she's and in more ways than one so first of all she's kind of you know weathered from the world she's experienced a lot more she understands that like she has this desire to be seen and desired um more than snow white snow white is this you know country bumpkin that seems like she was born yesterday has no idea how anything works you know very naive i'm just gonna oh i'm gonna wander into this this house and just start cleaning up and i bet they're all nice you know um i bet you know i'm, I'm if i'm gonna roll the dice i bet all seven of these people are gonna come in and they're gonna be happy that i broke into their house so she's obviously one of them will yeah <laughs> oh happy right right but but at least uh um she kind of has this this naive essence to her but a little bit deeper than that if you if you look at the the brothers grim backstory on this and sort of the meanings in the archetypes of the characters the whole entire archetype of this old witch and the old crone was that they were um they were lamenting over their loss of fertility like they can't have kids anymore they, they're going through menopause um and that also it can be reflective of this like this well where the well is you know the uh the womb of the earth essentially it goes deep down into the earth and snow white represents this new virgin maid fertility um and again this old witch is looking into this mirror and it's saying, like, am I the most fertile one in the land? Can I still reproduce? Am I the one that, you know, nature wants to reproduce with? And they say, oh, no, there's this new chick in town. And, you know, she makes you look like nothing. And, and actually, when you see when the, the queen starts out in the movie, she's fairly young and she does look attractive, you know, like you would 
maybe believe that when she's asking it into this mirror, it would come back and tell her that she's still, um, you know, the most desired. But later on in the movie, she turns into this like old crone with the, the hooked nose and the big war, you know, like the very stereotypical old witch. And that is to kind of represent that she's crossed that threshold. Like, you know, she's gone through menopause. She she is no longer able to create life ever again. And that's when she sort of embraces um, death as opposed to life. Yeah, I'm like, that's it's, since her goal is to be the fairest of them all, that seems rather counterintuitive. Um, she she well, she wants to reproduce wrong. with the prince. Yeah, yeah. She phrased the question wrong to the mirror, magic mirror on the wall. Who's the hottest of them all? Yeah. <laughs> who's, who's who's a cougar? <laughs> That's what. But you know, in the '30s, I guess, and especially in you know Brothers Grimm time, I guess that those were not concepts being hot or being a cougar or something like that. Well, and you you mentioned a good point too about the uh the prince just kind of being like a just a bag of meat there, you know. He's not he doesn't really have like any actual role or character development in the story. So, who's to say that if the the queen had summoned that prince there, then maybe she would have hooked up with the prince. Yeah. Um so, I guess we'll just kind of move on through the movie bit by bit. We have the Attempted murder for Snow White with the woodsman who forgot to practice his stabbing. <laughs> well, well, actually, let me. I've got a a, a fairly interesting note here oh, on yeah, um, Snow White. So, so there's a couple of theories on Snow White being based on a real person. I don't know if you've have you heard any of these before. I'm not sure I have. So let, let's do it. Okay. So one one of the the people that she might have been. Um, related to historically was a woman named Margaret van Waldeck. And this was a German countess that was born in 1533, I think to, to Philip the fourth. Um, and when she was around 16, so which is roughly around the age that we would assume snow white probably is, she was forced by her stepmother, you know, it's starting to sound familiar um, <laughs> to move away to Brussels and when she was there, she fell in love with an actual prince. Um, this prince ended up becoming Philip II of Spain. So here's a 16-year-old with an evil stepmother cast away into a different land that fell in love with a literal prince. Um, now where it gets a little bit dark is that she died at 21, and the rumors was that she was poisoned. Um, and that, uh, I don't know if it was necessarily because of the stepmother. I think it might just end there that she died at this early age from being poisoned, but also her dad owned a bunch of copper mines. And back then in the, you know, 1500s, it's not like they had child labor laws and they had the 40 hour work week or anything. So in these copper mines, you'd find, you know, children and people working under all kinds of horrible conditions. And because of all of the, the conditions that they went through, some of the toxic chemicals, and also just the practices, people would come away with, you know, missing appendages and limbs and fingers, and they would actually be known as the poor dwarfs. That was sort of this, uh, this uh, term that kind of got thrown around. If you worked in those mines, you were one of these poor dwarfs, you know, dwarf because you were missing a leg maybe, and poor because, you know, you were being forced to work in this copper mine. So again, that's one of these examples of Margaret Waldeck being snow white because of the evil stepmother sent away and her dad owned these mines of of poor dwarfs so that okay. one that one's interesting yeah I, I feel like i 
either I remember her being alluded to in a book about the Tudors or in the TV show, the Tudors. I don't remember, but <laughs> one of the two, so, but I, I never would have drawn that line. So, uh, so the, the other one is a completely different person from the 1700s. This is Maria Sophia von Erthel. Um, and this was in Bavaria, which, you know, this is actually where a lot of those Disney castles kind of come from is, is the Bavarian landscape. Um, so this one is interesting because she moved away into a castle, had a similar thing with like a stepmother going on, but the stepmother owned a mirror. And apparently the mirror was this, this kind of like technological feat of the age. But if you talked into it, I think it would like reverberate a little bit. It kind of like had this concavity to it um, and some sort of like a hollow mechanism. I, don't, I haven't broke it down to see exactly how it worked, but it was kind of known as this talking mirror. So one of the the legends, especially of like this talking mirror that made its way into Disney um, or in, into the grim fairy tales could have related to an actual mirror that existed at some point that had this kind of uh, illusion of talking back to you. Yeah, I mean, we have trouble as as humans, I guess, admitting the fact that we may have lost certain technologies. Uh, the, one of the examples I love is finding basically that computer uh, from ancient Greece that they found on a on a boat, uh, a sunken ship. So it's like, yeah, these people weren't stupid, you know. <laughs> they probably had a few things that we don't have. I mean, I, I'm sure you and I would be impressed by a talking mirror. So. Um, things with acoustics like uh I, the u.s capitol uh, one of the rooms in there you can whisper on one side of the chamber and hear it on the other side you know so <laughs> they had a lot of time to figure this stuff out and experiment and and actually um the loss of just you know we, we talked about this in the fantasia episode but the architecture and how ornate you are about your architecture says a lot of things about how advanced your particular culture or civilization is and that can extrapolate not just to frilly little leaves and, and filigrees on your columns, but these things like being able to whisper um, and hear it in other places. They said that too about Grand Central Station, I believe in New York, that you can, uh, even when it's busy, there's certain places you can stand. And if you talk directly into a corner, it'll travel like up this arc, you know, all the way across the room. So if someone's standing in another corner, you can have like a private conversation with them, even with all this other noise running around and i mean i don't think that even if that wasn't by design i think it might have been by design some aspect but you don't get that result without the precision and this you know it doesn't just like accidentally happen unless you the the design was in place yeah. it might not have been because they wanted to be able to have a conversation between two people but just the fact that the acoustics are designed that way um you know that's that's impressive in its own and, uh, you know, I don't know that many things. I do know that because I've, I've tried it. It's fun. <laughs> at um, at a Grand Central Station? I think it was just a U.S. Capitol chamber. Uh, okay. Sure. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah, maybe similar like that as well. Because uh, that's one thing I've heard, uh, one theory on the, the pyramids being that, you know, people talk about frequencies and things and that the pyramid system actually might have been like a form of communi communication doing that like across the earth. I mean, a while. Oh, I love theory, that. Yeah, that's yeah, such, a, yeah, that's such a cool topic. And there is, yeah. I'm getting way out of my depth here, but I, I can swear, could have sworn that there was a story about Pythagoras at some point where he found this like echoing chamber and it like blew his mind and it, and it sort of like uh, 
opened up this discovery into music theory that he might not have gone without this anecdotal, you know, thing about him discovering echoes and, and how like the pitch changed and the reverberation. Well, it's Newton getting bopped on the head with an apple. Yeah. <laughs> Although he was in right. alchemy anyway, wasn't he? <laughs> yeah, all that, actually, all that, yeah, absolutely. That gravity stuff with a side trip. <laughs> you know, Newton's interesting too on a, on a totally different tangent, which we'll wind back uh, from, but um newton to me is is very similar to like nostradamus where like nostradamus is impressive if you ignore all the things that he got wrong and you just to pay attention to the things that seem were right it's like oh man this guy was you know prophetic but you know the actual batting average is probably not that impressive and i think newton was fairly similar where he said a lot of stuff um so just by like a game of numbers he was right about quite a number of things but um, he doesn't have there's not as many people that are writing books about all the things that he got wrong and making documentaries about all the things that he got wrong you know yep it's it's the reputation you leave behind um speaking of which I, I'm, I'm guessing the queen couldn't just off snow white herself because of karma get someone else to do it is that is that the idea uh that's a great question i think i mean if we're just talking about practical humans, if she just wanted to kill this Snow White, then yeah, like why why couldn't she just go and do it herself? But again, you have to look through this through this, even if it's not like magical occult, secret esoteric symbolism, there's still gonna be these story archetypes and these tried and true um patterns that just evolved that came from you know mythological stories that came way before it. So like this occultism is baked in. So and when one of the most obvious is that she gives her this apple, right? This like, it's almost like the same Adam and Eve style, like the, the snake delivering this apple to Eve. It's saying, Hey, you know, take a bite into this knowledge and find out about this, you know, all of the goods and, and bads of nature that's been around you that you've been completely ignorant to this naive 16 year old virgin maiden. That's, you know, never ventured outside of her hometown essentially. And now she's out into the wilderness She's talking to animals. She's learning about earth magic through these dwarves, which we'll get into. Um, so this apple kind of represents her crossing of that threshold into like, okay, I've, I've eaten from the tree of knowledge essentially. And she dies from it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just, I was thinking about with the queen, um, you know, sort of the reason that everyone's so fascinated from the, uh, by manson right because manson convinced people to do horrible things so the queen is trying as hard as long as she can to convince people to do these things right oh so the the, the huntsman was like one of the manson crew yeah really well I mean, yeah he he was an actual crony i guess but even you know the people who make war the people who decide to make war tell other people to tell other people to go shoot other people so it's like you know the, the where, where is the most evil the person who comes up with the idea or the person literally executing the idea well and there's something to be said too about the balance of power like if if you're the one that's actually on the front lines then you you clearly aren't the one with the actual power so by the queen commanding others to do her dirty work it just reconfirms that she in fact has the most power out of anyone yeah i guess i'm just trying to paint true evil as being the person that convinces other people to do evil things which is why we call her the evil queen. <laughs> In this case, commanding people to do evil things. That's right. Uh, Although, I mean, there's... In just, like, the, the devil's advocate sense, you could say that that she's not necessarily pure evil here. She's just filling her role. Like, she has to give Snow White the apple because Snow White 
has to gain forbidden knowledge and then she has to be reunited with this male energy at the end which brings her back to life like these things have to happen for reasons because at the end she's you know even grander of a person for it and if she hadn't gone through all these trials and tribulations if she hadn't been killed by the queen and then the queen later essentially sacrifices herself even if it's unwittingly um (laughs) Like th- this all has to happen in order for the story to progress and for her to kind of be reborn as this new person. And she literally dies and comes back to life, which the occult implications of dying and coming back to life are, you know, we can get into as a whole other route here. But the, the point I'm making here, though, is that just like Judas, essentially, um, it's like Judas had to kill, you know, he had to do something that resulted in, say, Jesus dying and then dying for the sins of humanity like if that didn't happen then like what's the point of even having christianity if the whole like exchanging the son of god's death for the sins of humanity thing didn't exchange then there's no there's no reason to even have that story so it's it's the exact same thing here if you don't have snow white dying and being reborn then you know there's no story there so in in effect the queen is just you know it's fulfilling her role she's she's like the vulture it's kind of like an unfortunate role that you have to play, um, but that was her role to play. Yeah, that, that was one of the um, things that really riled people up about Scorsese's Last Temptation of Christ, sort of suggesting that Judas was actually, in a way, the the most dutiful of the apostles, <laughs> and carrying out the like him and Jesus had like kind of planned it out together. So, you know, <laughs> my my favorite way I've heard that movie described is is the sexy Jesus movie versus the bloody Jesus, which is the <laughs> the passion of the christ (laughs) (laughs) yeah i see that one i never wanted to see right i'm like well i don't really want to watch mel gibson's torture porn (laughs) if i mean if you've heard what it's about then you've essentially already seen it in your in your mind right (laughs) that's what i'm guessing so yeah Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) um i definitely something i really do like is with Snow White is dispatched into the forest. It's it's just a terrible, evil place. And she quickly realizes, oh, it's just all me. I'm making this terrible. It's- yeah, well, and it's her ignorance that she's really afraid of. It's all of like the the dark and the eyeballs, and it's just all of the things unknown. Because again, she's this naive bumpkin that's never been out into the world before. So everything scares her. Yeah, also very cool animation, but um once she chills out and takes a deep breath, she now attracts all the woodland critters. Well, and not just attracts them, but apparently is able to talk to them because she can speak and they sort of understand what she's saying and almost like follow her commands a little bit. So this, again, in sort of like the, the esoteric um, interpretation here, this is humanity venturing out into nature, dabbling with nature magic and realizing that there's a direct connection, whatever this human spark is, it there's like a, an as above, so below kind of likeness attraction where that same kind of miracle within nature is being attracted to the miracle of humanity. And she's conversing with them. Like it's literally language of the birds. If you've ever heard of um, green language or language of the birds before. That sounds familiar. Sorry. I, I was just thinking I went to an uh, office meeting yesterday and um you know, people were still wearing masks in the meeting and one guy's there and I'm, I'm hearing bird calls. I'm like, why are they playing bird calls over the um, loudspeakers? And it turns out he's just sitting there making bird calls. I'm like, that's interesting. So um, 
that so actually with sounds that, pretty fun. That's a, a good reason to keep wearing the mask is for just like ventriloquist bird calls in the middle of meetings. Yeah. Well, I, I, I teach and I, I have a cookie, mo- a, a full size cookie monster puppet. So uh, <laughs> I, I don't like wearing masks, but when, you know, I definitely like it at that point because I can, you know, do full on cookie monster. Right. I don't have to try and do a ventriloquist. Also, because I only have to shave once a week. That's nice, too. So, <laughs> well, I mean, it's a good reason to work on the bird calls and yeah. and to just and to clarify language of the birds if you were to like look it up on wikipedia or something it it does pertain specifically to like people thinking that they can talk to and from birds but but the phrase language of the birds in green language is a little bit um higher of a concept than that and it's essentially seeing things in nature and reading them convincing yourself that you've just interpreted a message from the divine or something so specifically language of the birds if you were going out for battle you're the general and you see this bird migration fly above, you can interpret that as like a good omen or a bad omen. Um, and if you actually followed through with that, that would be you interpreting language of the birds. Um, so, but you could also extrapolate that to like reading tea leaves or any, so, you know, spitting in the dirt and mixing around with a stick and imagining what kind of uh, shape it comes up with or looking at the clouds and figuring out organic shapes that are in the clouds. This is all sort of language of the birds and green language. But that's essentially what Snow White is doing at the very beginning of this movie. She's language of the birds and and back and forth, uh, you know, communing with nature. Actually, here, here's a little bit of my, my bird language then. Um, I podcast with another one of my coworkers, and sometimes we'll do it after work, especially if, you know, only we need to get something on schedule. We'll record at a temple. And multiple times, we've just encountered different animals. Like we're sitting there. I think we were doing the movie Lucy. It's like, hey, there's a fox staring at us. <laughs> and then we did another one. A few weeks later, we walk out. This is an owl, giant owl staring at us. Of course, there's a bird uh, itself. Another time I get to the train station, there's foxes at the train station, which is really weird. So I do find it interesting running into these animals after doing a podcast sometimes. <laughs> you know, and you, you said owl, which reminds me, there's there's one thing that a lot of people bring up. If you go and do like um, online searches for occult symbols and Snow White, it's almost impossible to find one that doesn't cite owls that are all over the inside of the dwarves house. It's all up and down the staircase it's on the um, it's on like the banister above like the fireplace. It's all over the place. So these little like wooden owl faces carved all over the inside of the house. And this is often I just wanted to point it out because it's so often cited as like this uh, this nod to like the Illuminati or something like this. I'm I don't think that that's why the owls are in there. The owls have all kinds of cool occult symbolism. Um, if you it, mo- one of the more common ones is that the owls can see at night. Um, even when there's very low light. So it's this implication that owls are wise because they can see in the darkness where other people, you know, can't see in the darkness. And it's this metaphor to like darkness being ignorance and everything. So that that could be um, attributed here to, again, uh, Snow White being able to kind of like see through and, and learn a, bit, a little bit more about her ignorance and get more information from these these gnomes. Um, but or the dwarves I, I don't know if gnomes dwarves would they get offended if, if i mix that up i don't know 
Yeah, well, it depends on if they're on your lawn. That that's it. If you call them a gnome, they're like, "No, you just want me to stand on your lawn." <laughs> I'm a dwarf, <laughs> and, and it's and it's worth pointing out here too. I haven't I haven't done a deep enough dive on this, but the the little hats they wear. Do you, you recognize the the specific hats that all of the seven dwarves wear? Are are we going phallus with this? <laughs> no, no, no. We're not going phallus yet. <laughs> not yet. Okay. But they're, but they're wearing Phrygian caps. Um, and these Phrygian caps are like these, it's like the little, uh, it looks like a sock that kind of like folds over on the top and they're all wearing this and, and Phrygian caps are a sort of an interesting concept because the use of them and their presence in sculptures and artwork predates human written record. So you can actually find images of, and, and they're, and a lot of them are from cults. So there was like an ancient cult that its members would wear these Phrygian caps and the artwork pertaining to these cults predates uh, written records of said cults, which is such an interesting concept on its own. But the Phrygian, whenever you see a Phrygian cap anywhere in artwork, especially modern art, um, you can take it as some sort of a nod to like the, the ancient arts and the ancient unknowns. Before I completely move into the dwarf land, I, I am just looking at my note here that... Uh... We, we, I know we have in Japan the idea of forest therapy, which I guess is another idea, kind of what Snow White's doing. Maybe in the green language might tie in with that, but um, the idea is just for depression or stress to basically go hang out in the forest for a while. I'm not sure the specifics if you're supposed to like what you're supposed to do, but that is a, so that I, is a I don't know if here. this is, I don't know if this is related to that specifically, the forest therapy, but um, I remember a long time ago watching. A documentary it might have been on like a like a very specific sect of uh, buddhism but it was in japan and essentially when someone was going through this initiation process they would go out into the woods and just camp out for i think it was like up to two weeks or something they wouldn't eat anything they might bring like, like just enough water to sustain them but they would eat absolutely nothing and essentially just starve themselves until they began to hallucinate and it was almost like a a Japanese version of like a native American spirit journey. Um, but from what I understand, it had absolutely nothing to do with consuming any sort of hallucinogens. It was just the process of forcing your body to start going through the, the phases of starvation. The brain would start to shut down and some of like the, the synapses, like there just wouldn't be enough energy in the body to complete all the normal communication in the mind. And it sort of, emulated the same effects as a hallucinogen where it was forcing the brain to make the connections that weren't there as the body was like starting to shut itself down. But once, once they get into this state of hallucinating, they would be able to like talk to their ancestors and, you know, do some kind of like deep soul searching. And then once that happens, they hopefully, you know, make it back out of the woods and go home and, and uh, recuperate. Have you heard of anything that sounds anything like that? Yeah, actually, I'm not, I, it might be a perfect, I don't know if it's a perfect match, but um, not too far from here, probably about 50 miles is Togakushi, which uh, is fun. You can visit the Ninja Village, uh, which is, I, I like to call the, the world's most dangerous amusement park, because basically you're like climbing around on stuff like a ninja. Let my daughter do that when we were six. Um, but that was, they have the Ninja Museum. And yeah, that was one of the things they would do. Uh, just kind of, they would go recluse themselves in the, in the, in the uh, Japanese mountains. And I'm not sure. And, and I believe it was like, it was like a test of 
your resilience on how long you could just survive out there with nothing but meditation and, and yourself and not go crazy. And, um, but, it, but it also was supposed to be some like very deep spiritual experience for you that you come back, you know, like a changed person. Here's a, this one's a lot easier, but, uh, I work in Nagano city. And I, I think I mentioned before the main temple there is called Zenkoji. Uh, one of the fun features of Zenkoji is it has a underground passage with no lights whatsoever. And oh, you didn't mention that part of it. It's a, it's kind of like a, kind of like a big C. You go in, it's dark, but um, at the very back of the C, you're supposed to find a little handle, and if you can find the handle, you're you're supposed to gain some bit of enlightenment. Which is this like a trick? Like there's no handle? There's a handle. Oh, there is I mean, a handle. Okay, yeah, this is one of the main Buddhist temples. <laughs> like like but, there is no spoon, sort of thing. <laughs> well, here's the thing. Um. If usually when you go, it's probably you're, you're a tourist or something. It's a Saturday, Sunday. There's you know a lot of people are going through. You're in a line of people, and it's a you you hear the kids giggling when they find the handle, that sort of thing. Um, <laughs> but I went in one day com- with without anyone because I don't work too far from there. I went with nobody. Nobody was in there. I was like, okay, now I get it. Now I get why the experience. It's like you have to be by yourself for the experience to work. And what was uh, different about it when you were by yourself? there's no presences around you. I mean, I mean, let's face it. You can kind of feel people's auras around you to a certain extent, no noise. That was extremely important because on a, on a normal busy day, there's people, you know, mumbling or giggling or things like that footsteps, but um, doing it by completely by yourself in complete silence is a much more profound experience than uh, just a, a fun day with your family. It family. sounds like if, if this were something in the, the States, it would just be covered in like gum and like <laughs> crazy glue or something. It would. And, when it, and it would smell. It would smell. Yeah, yeah, it, would, it would smell like urine. Guaranteed. It would smell like <laughs> urine. <laughs> so, yeah, I, there, there was the expression. This is why we can't have nice things. We get a lot of yeah. nice things in Japan. <laughs> <laughs> like recently, um, I don't know why. I guess people have been trying to save money. So it's getting even harder. It's always been notoriously difficult to find a trash can in Japan. And now it's getting even harder. Yet there's still no litter <laughs> in most places. It's, it's wild. <laughs> it sounds like a nice problem to have, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, well, let's talk about the dwarves. I, I won't be titling the, um, the episode this, but I did name our zoom meeting snow white and the seven elementals uh you want to riff from that yeah so so actually you brought up a really good point when we first started talking here that you felt like it kind of dragged when she went into the dwarves house and she's just kind of doing the dishes and she's brooming the floor and she's making the beds and it's like why why did a bunch of animators sit down and draw this lady just doing chores um, and why am I watching it for six minutes? You know, like this could have been cut. Um, and I and I think that, again, if you if you look into this from sort of a, a specifically like a Rosicrucian Gnostic um, at point of view and, and Rosicrucian being a very, very general term of just any sort of non um, it, it is a non-christian look at sort of the occult magics and pagan rituals and pagan knowledge that came from like the 1500s and on sort of rosicrucianism is is like the systematic way of looking at that it's not just 
taking all a whole bunch of like folklore and lumping it in. It's actually putting like a system around it and trying to define certain aspects of it. And the reason why I'm making a particular um, delineation towards Rosicrucianism is because there's been a lot of Rosicrucian specific writings about Snow White and about dwarves um, in particular. So the, the, the correlations are there for some some really interesting reasons but again going back to like why are we watching her do a bunch of chores so the dwarves they they've never they are earth elementals okay so and if you if you literally look at the elementals air earth fire water if you were an earth elemental like you don't you you don't have water you've never touched water so they're dirty they've never cleaned they've never taken a bath before because like literally is a just a single you know earth elemental that's never interacted with any of the other four elements it's just pure dirt pure earth so snow white comes in and she starts cleaning the ground and starts cleaning everything they come in and she convinces them all to take baths this is humanity saying okay i see these these uh nature elements you know these magical elements i'm going to start combining them i'm going to combine the earth element with the water element this is her cleaning the house this is her having them take these baths and at one point the one of the dwarves is actually saying like i've never even touched water before and this is it's hard to watch it and not immediately translate that to like this is an earth element like they if they beat you over the head and said you know by the way watcher we're talking about earth elementals here that's the only way they could be more explicit about it so basically they've got a punk rock house (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah it's it's like a a hoarder's uh sort of house yeah for sure one of my friends when we were living in america like one of my best friends i like would not let my wife come with me to to his place he came to our place all the time, but I wouldn't let her go there because I knew she'd start cleaning and it was just, it was never going to happen. It was a full on <laughs> punk rock house. <laughs> it was like the young one's house, right? <laughs> it was like, no, you, yeah, like that, 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 uh, that extra little like film of dirt is sort of like a badge of honor, right? Exactly. Like he, and- you got to smoke like a, a few hundred packs to get that nice brown tint on all the walls, right? Yeah, my wife's Japanese and a Japanese woman cannot handle that. <laughs> that that would drive them to madness because they would try cleaning it and they can't. So <laughs> yeah, so she was not allowed. Well, to that's visit. that's why you get to have nice things, right? <laughs> it is, yes, it is. That that's a, there are pluses to this. I am so you think their house smells more like dirt or sulfur? <laughs> uh I mean, great I would I would probably say a little bit of both, because again, they're going during the day they're going down into the earth and they're mining all day so they have to be coming back up and smelling like sulfur you know (laughs) so let's get i mean that makes a lot of sense for the dwarves themselves but then we got the names which could just be an affectation but we specifically got most of them named after um emotions or or characteristics except for doc yeah so this one is was the hardest one for me to read into because I I want to say that this is Snow White representing humanity, assigning emotion, like human emotions to, you know, earth elements. But when she goes into the house, they already have their names on all of their beds. So clearly those emotions um, were labeled to each of those individual dwarves before she came around. Uh, or at least, you know, when she was conscious of it. You, you could say that maybe if this really was humanity, maybe humanity had already named these dwarves and they already knew her and she already knew them, but 
everyone forgot each other. That's kind of like the creation story, like the Tower of Babel, you know, like everyone was on the same page and they were working towards total enlightenment and it all kind of fell apart and everyone forgot each other. So there might be some element of that to this um, because again, as earth elementals, they're almost like inert, you know, they like all they do is just go into the ground dig up gems bring them back they even claim in the movie that they don't even know what the hell they're <laughs> digging them up for they're just like we don't know what we're doing we just dig up these gems and bring them up um and that's because those gems is is these like gems of information these gems of knowledge that can only be utilized by human intellect and earth elementals got nothing to do with intellect it can't it can't process it it takes humanity come in and the, the human intellect to process those gems and i was you know the um kind of mindless labor thing disney opens up a bunch of its movies with this stuff uh, if you think of the, even up the beginning of frozen it's like you know i, I can only remember the uh, the honest trailers we are cutting ice song but <laughs> like yeah that's actually a really great point so and and there's a few other examples i, mean, I think pocahontas might start with just manual labor they always movies starting with having a mindless manual labor Oh man, we can we could go deep on not today, but we can go real deep on Pocahontas and occult <laughs> symbolism because the the actual people that are represented in that movie go really really deep. Yeah, especially that time period. Yeah, we'll save that one because I just yeah I just started thinking of Francis Bacon and it could go on all day, can it? <laughs> yeah. So so you mentioned to the um the seven Earth elementals, but in the whole concept of of occult sciences and rosicrucianism you could also correlate the seven dwarves to the seven planets and this isn't the seven literal planets um if you go back into again this like occult sciences they were talking about what the, you call the seven classical planets or the seven luminaries and this is essentially just the the large masses that classical people could see in the sky so like they considered the moon a planet, um, Mercury, Venus, the sun, they considered a planet, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn. So th this is the, the seven classical planets, but they could very well represent those seven dwarves. And maybe those emotions could be attributed as emotions for each of those planets. There's also the seven sages ideas. Let's, let's just take it from the Atlantis perspective, where Atlantis is a civilization that goes down and there's these you know, seven sages with their little handbags and stuff like reseeding knowledge, which again, you mentioned the dwarves like in getting these gems or maybe getting gems of knowledge. So um, I, I'm just laying it out all now. So that I, I didn't think about this in detail. Oh, there, man, you reminded me too of some, some deeper research that I'm not going to be able to pull to my head, but, but the, the symbolism of a bag and keeping, keeping treasures in a bag itself has a, a very deep sort of like occult past to it um like especially when it comes to like ancient uh, artwork that's been found usually when it's someone holding a bag that bag refers to some kind of like secret or hidden knowledge it, it's like almost never do they just throw uh, an accessory in you know what i mean <laughs> like uh, like almost just like these animated movies an animator had to sit there and draw the same frame thousands of times so it's not like they just accidentally oops i just drew that extra little bag on this guy's belt and the same goes for all sorts of old classical artworks as well and very little of those details um were arbitrary 
and the idea of um holding him holding information on a crystal i mean you got superman the the first movie has that um what else oh the uh crystal crystal skulls from central america which are seem to be laser cut despite being extremely old yeah. and there's the <laughs> yeah. theory that and if you they... stare into it and like focus your energy it can like drive you insane and you have i love those stuff. then like dan Aykroyd has like a vodka um out that's that's based on the legend of the crystal skulls oh i just know that he went on a bunch of podcasts shilling his vodka and it was hysterical <laughs> that's i mean that's what it's based on is that he's also fascinated in, in the the crystal skull mythology apparently if you get him talking about ufos you're gonna have a good time so <laughs> or an interesting <laughs> time at least but yeah i didn't know his vodka was actually tied in with that but um i as far as images the sear to my brain when you say snow white the first image i do get is basically the dwarves you know silhouetted against the sunset marching home i don't know if that means anything that's just like Maybe it's just I've seen too many promo materials that did that, but somehow that seems to be. The it's also such an earwig, man. That that might be the original Disney earwig, um, in in terms of like a song that just gets caught in your head that you can't shake. Um, that that feels like one of the the original ones to me, at least. Except I I can only rustle up the lyrics whistle while you work hitler's a jerk mussolini bit his weenie now it doesn't work the, i don't the, think the i've seen version. that that edition <laughs> <laughs> no that was that was the wartime song and it, for some reason when i was a kid it was still bouncing around even though i don't know i guess people just thought it was funny <laughs> so well, uh, the one that i remember was the 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 batman um jingle bells oh right right that, that jingle was bells the... batman smells yeah yeah, Bart, Bart Simpson got that one uh, immortalized in the Simpsons Christmas special for That's us, right. So. <laughs> That's right. That's right. It was a Simpson thing. I'm not sure so, why my. Oh, go ahead. Well, I, I was going to mention back back on the gnomes thing because I don't because there's a couple other cool like really small details that all sort of keep adding up to this this theory that they're Earth elementals, um, and one of them again is is your mundane. You know, she comes in and she's cleaning the house. Why is this? Well, this is because their messy house is a, a show of neglect of this higher order of consciousness um, that like only man humanity can come and preserve. And even when they come in, they're like, what happened to all the dust? Where's my cobwebs? You know, like they were used to living in this ignorance and um, just kind of living in this like one dimensional state. And they clearly saw the impact of humanity when humanity came through and started shining light and cleaning the cobwebs out. Um, so again, this, I, I find this one is like one of the most interesting parts. And they also, they, she begins to cook for them, but they also sort of end up um, providing for her, you know, now she's got a place to stay and be safe and she can eat herself and, and nourish herself. So this is humanities and nature's symbiotic relationship again, where what nature gets out of it is humanity coming in and cleaning out the cobwebs. Um, and invoking these spirits and being able to actually utilize all the gems. And then at the same time, nature is sustaining humanity, keeping humanity alive, giving um, humanity a safe place to stay from the outside elements. So Dopey, what he does with the gems, is, is that just funny or... <laughs> Sticking them in his so. eyes. Yeah, I mean, okay. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I'm I'm not one that's that's trying to look for, you know, uh symbols everywhere, always, constantly. This particular um, and and if you need to put a name to it, there's a guy named Franz Barden 
who was a, a, a German self-proclaimed magician. And he did a whole set of, of Rosicrucian research on gnomes and dwarves. And he mentions, um, I've, got, I've got an actual quote here from one of his books. And it says, gnomes are little people similar to elves and fairy tales. They have long beards and wear caps. We talked about the, uh, the, the Phygerian cap. Um, they've got long hair and flashing eyes and their garments are frocks and that every earth spirit carries a small lantern and each lantern has a different luminosity. The lanterns help the earth spirits find their way through the subterraneous kingdom. And again, you mentioned as they're going down, they all have these different lands. Well, in the animation, they aren't necessarily all colored something completely different, but this again represents if you uh, assign each of these seven dwarves to the seven classical planets those planets were rumored to vibrate at different frequencies they all had their own color they had their own emotion um so again this is just reconstituting the same theory about them being like earth elementals and and representing sort of this arcane magic from from essentially the the magic that was baked into these grim fairies tales that then get evoked and illustrated through disney's Here's one that <clears throat> I am going to go ahead and read into a little bit because um, they start going Jiminy Cricket, like all of them. Yeah. And Jiminy Cricket, <laughs> yeah. of course, is going to be a character in the next movie. And I was like, well, that could, maybe they liked it. Maybe it's just an expression at the time. But then I was like, well, other people have done that. Um, Led Zeppelin, they'd always put like the song, the album title tune on a different album. It kind of made me think of that. Like, um, what is it? Uh, Oh, now I can't remember Zed, Led Zeppelin album titles. For, oh, the song remains the same as on a completely different album, for example. You you might not be wrong, uh, especially because, I mean, Pinocchio was the very next full-length feature movie, and it came out like three years after Snow White did. So, there, I mean, there was probably overlap between guys working on Snow White and guys working on Pinocchio, or at least transitioning over into it. Yeah. Or, or uh, Pixar movies always have something from the next pixar movie hidden somewhere in the previous or like pixar a license movie. plate or like a fast food sign or like a t-shirt yeah it always like links to something else that's going to come up yeah so i i'm just pointing out this is something that disney's been doing like pretty much the whole time which is kind of just like a you know animator easter egg in a way too so well okay well actually i'm glad you brought that up this easter egg because you know you're a, a disney fan more so than the average person i assume that came up before at least have you heard the concept of a hidden mickey oh yeah <laughs> my so, dork is the theme park stuff. so so <laughs> for people that aren't aware of what hidden mickey means um i mean the the people behind disney and, and disney fans are obsessed with these secret hidden messages and meanings and symbols everywhere to the point where um the parks and and movies and just everything disney related has these things called hidden mickeys and it's essentially ways that they can hide the the mouse ears logo you know like mickey's silhouette all over the place and um architecture and patterns and like you name it so i you could probably come up with some better examples than i can because i like i know what they are and i remember when i worked at, at disney you know people were always like asking me if i knew where these secret hidden mickeys were but um i just never got as deep into it to actually like know all the cool examples um the only one i can think of right off the top of my head is i think in tokyo's Pooh's honey hunt i believe there's a and in the end, when he has finally found his honey, I believe some of the honey is in the shape of a Mickey, just uh, to call one off 
off the spot. Sorry, that's a uh, that's a Tokyo one, but that's the one I've been to most recently. So, <laughs> but but the point here is that it's not arbitrary, and it's not that the honey was made, and then someone afterwards was like, "Hey, that kind of looks like a Mickey," and then they were like, "Okay, we're going to call that a hidden Mickey." The, the premise is that they know that they want to hide these hidden Mickey ears in, in very subtle places. So they hide them there just so that people can find them and get excited that they are kind of like seeing the secret language that's encoded around them. Um, and, and it's such a great analogy for being interested in sort of esoteric and occult wisdom. Cause that's, that's, it's all about just seeing hidden, hidden Mickey's everywhere you go. It's about, going into a museum or going into a church or going into, you know, any sort of public place with classic architecture and pointing out little details and being like, Oh, that, that thing there, that's a scorpion, but that's probably a reference to the Scorpio, um, you know, like Zodiac. So that might actually date this piece or have some kind of delineation between that. And that's exactly kind of like what a head Mickey would be. And if you didn't know it was there, you would just be like, Oh, that's a cool little design. And just keep you know walking. I'm ah yes, it's the biggest one, and I'm I'm trying to find specifically what it is. But um, you're still looking at hidden Mickey's. I am. There's uh, it's Hollywood Studios, and I I think it's one part of the the map where if you are looking down the whole maybe it's like the Echo Lake area is is a, a giant hidden Mickey. So that's kind of fun. Uh, but there is one. I think it's Hollywood Studios. One part of the map. The the layout of the park is actually a hidden Mickey, which is kind of cool. <laughs> and, and there's Mickey's, people that book their entire vacations around just hunting hidden Mickeys the entire time, which is, <laughs> I mean, whatever, whatever floats your boat, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, so it's like a scavenger hunt. It's exactly what it is. Yeah. Okay. Um, let's get, I guess we need to get to the queen's transformation and basically the meat of the movie. Cause yeah, I mean, cleaning, cleaning your house is good. Of course, although I like to work with a little bit of clutter, I find when my room is perfectly arranged, I'm not very productive. For a little bit of clutter, I get productive. So. I've heard that's a sign of genius. <laughs> okay, maybe maybe that's dwarf energy. I don't know. <laughs> but um, the queen's transformation again—it's really counterintuitive. Um, I guess she just got murder in her heart at this point, so that uglifies herself anyway. Yeah, I mean the the very obvious superficial take is that she becomes this ugly outward appearance because it's reflecting her ugly, you know, inner appearance. But again, this, when she can completely converts into this like stereotypical witch with the hook nose and the mole, this is just a reference to that. She has fully crossed that, that threshold and is now um, completely became this archetype. Like before there might have been, a question if she was the fairest one of them all and if snow white may or may not have been her competition now it's like she has fully embraced the role of okay now i'm this evil witch and i have to fulfill the rest of my my destiny essentially and part of that is you know putting on that uniform right and this is the other part where i i wondered if they were padding the movie but maybe if you can spell this out so we have the transformation where she has a book that literally says black magic on the spine i love that yeah. <laughs> <laughs> keep that around your house well in your in her dungeon i guess but then we'd spend like eight minutes with dwarf song time which seems like interesting pacing maybe it's just to make sure that we know that snow white and the dwarves are kind of like getting along and they like her and all that sort of stuff but uh it did seem to kind of put the brakes on the narrative a little bit. Uh, just watching it from a 2020 
one perspective. Yeah, I mean, honestly, if you watch any even modern cartoon now, that's always like a given where or, or even like movies, you know, if, if you need to stretch the time out a little bit, you just throw in like a two or three minute song and it excuses any sort of like story arcs that you have to resolve or or like really complicated dialogue or or back and forth character development. Um, and, and it also not to underestimate the power of those earwigs and the power of getting, you know, kids to sing along. And that's what, what turns these movies into cult classics is that it's got these things that you can sing along to that exist outside the movie. Like if there was no songs at all in this, you know, how much staying power do you think these Disney movies would have if they didn't come complete with their own soundtracks and uh, lyrics and everything else to, to keep it alive, even when you're not watching it. And I am seeing and realizing I just accused the segment of the movie with someday my prince will come as padding. But to be honest, I prefer the Miles Davis version. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this one that wasn't fine. in a, the original 1940 release, I say, or 1937 <laughs> release. Oh, yeah, yeah, it was. Doesn't matter that it was recorded in the late or early 60s, <laughs> late 50s, whatever it was. <laughs> and there, there's a couple other things, too. Um, so in the movie, I noticed when the, the book is the very, very beginning of the movie, they actually have like a live action book that it almost looks like they're pulling like, you know, strings to open it and the pages are turning and it opens up with Snow White. When they when they start talking about the queen for the first time, they go back to this book and on the like the filigrees um, inside the actual page when it has like that leading letter right under it is this huge peacock. And then when we see the queen, she's sitting in this huge throne and the throne is this big peacock. Um, and the symbolism of that peacock is also something that, that shouldn't be understated because in the medieval world, the peacock um, was often depending on the culture and the country, but it could be likened to the all seeing eye or the evil eye specifically because of the design at the very edge of the peacock's feathers. So when it spread the feathers out, it looks like all of these ominous eyes that are kind of like staring at you. So it, it took on this extra meaning of this like all seeing um, always present, you know, um, consciousness that knew what you were doing and what is the queen she's got this mirror that she can just look out and spy on you whenever she wants like the queen herself is this all-seeing eye this like big brother so it's clear how cbs and uh mbc are talking to us Wait, what is abc yeah. Symbol? <laughs> <laughs> well yeah the abc is the eye which is disney and yeah. no no C uh, cbs is the eye mbc is the or, yeah, yeah you're right you're I'm, right you're i'm right. trying to remember what abc's um symbol is well, yeah. AB, ABC is Disney. Right. Oh, oh, now it is. Yeah. I was thinking because the, these symbols came about in the 50s or 60s for the networks, right? When nobody would have really read into that because they didn't have the whole internet to, you know, read esoteric medieval. I mean, uh, the, the esoteric <laughs> history of television. Oh, yeah. And the, the people <laughs> that invented the technology and the people <laughs> that were behind the companies. That's a, a whole fascinating subject in itself. No, I'm just like they they were almost all spiritualists. Like almost anyone that had anything to do with radio or television waves um were spiritualists. Like they all believed they were literally capturing like spiritual energy in boxes and were, you know, mutating it for these weird reasons for entertainment, but so it's it's such a fascinating concept. I'm just pointing out that you're talking about the queen and stuff. It, it you could just change the word slightly and you're talking about that. So <laughs> Yeah, no, absolutely. So, and this is about, this is when the first, just after the first experimental broadcast had been started. So, 
um just interesting thoughts but yeah yeah the peacock um definitely cool there's something about was it the uh when the peacock dies the wings become more vibrant is it uh yeah this this has been likened to like the symbol of a phoenix as well which has even deeper kind of occult meanings where like the the phoenix or the peacock might have been the actual you know real life version of what the the mythological phoenix was okay um oh i definitely like the toxic sludge on the apple as as she's brewing the apple poison (laughs) and and this this came up in in a previous um talk about this but it's for whatever reason it's one of my favorite aspects of this but the and it was because i was watching long story short i was watching a uh like star trek or something reruns and it had um swedish subtitles and there was this one part when someone says like ah poison and the subtitle said ah gift you know exclamation mark (laughs) and it was just it just caught the corner of my eye because i was like only half paying attention i was like did the the you know did someone just say poison but the word was gift so i went on this whole you know I'm not working anymore. Like my full attention now is going to be figuring out the etymology of this word gift. And it turns out that the word gift in Germanic languages um, actually uh, it means poison, but it also comes from the actual word gift. And there is some deeper connection here, essentially with like this folklore grim fairy tale concept of giving you an apple, but it's a poison apple or giving you, you know, this thing that looks like a gift but it actually hurts you that comes from this like this folklore backstory to where um their folklore is so entwined with you know this poison apple sort of symbolism that the very word for poison is gift because of how like the witch in this movie gifts the apple to snow white like that's this is just completely arbitrary words that we're connecting. If you actually look into the etymology of the word gift, as in, you know, the German word for poison, this is where it comes from. And I, so for whatever reason, that just blows my mind that like, you know, that, that they were so embedded with this concept of giving around, you know, poison apples, so to speak, that it became part of your normal language. There's a story of the Buddha going to a, a village and basically being roundly ignored and people being like kind of angry towards him and him just leaving and someone being like, well, didn't you want to like try? He's like, well, no, I I didn't really want what, I didn't want to accept their gift. The gift just being of ridicule and uh, derision. (laughs) So that's the gift of poison uh, in a a different Well, he also died from from poison too, right? He was was served a, a mushrooms in his meal and the mushrooms were apparently poisonous or it was a poisonous to him yeah yeah so that too but yeah you, you know you never know you know don't look your gift horse in the mouth it may be laced with poison i don't know <laughs> <laughs> let's see uh, i'm just trying to make sure we get everything before our time cuts off oh i did love the um so the the dwarves go off to to work and very specifically warning snow white not to trust anybody which she immediately she goes for the most suspicious person shows up and she's like whatever yeah so i don't know that's not that's that's she sees this old helpless uh lady 
and the bird and the birds are trying to warn her. They're like tweeting around and they knock the apple out of the old lady's hand as she's trying to give it to Snow White. And Snow White like scolds the birds and you know it's like stop being mean to this poor old lady. And she brings her inside because then the the witch starts to feign having like a heart attack. Oh, you know, my poor heart. Let me get inside. Um, but yeah, it's it's all just a ploy. And again, this is like the nature magic trying to tell Snow White that there's this danger here. But again, I I always come back to this argument that the queen has a role to fulfill. Like she can't not give the poison apple to Snow White because otherwise, what what's Snow White doing here? If if Snow White doesn't die, then the prince doesn't get to come back to her. It's you know, like these are the 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 sequences in the story that you have to go through. So I guess Snow White must eat the apple. That's why she there, has to. She there is she no absolutely has to gain the the knowledge of good and evil. Like she has to gain that knowledge. Right. Yes. I guess she cannot become a woman until she, you know, understands that knowledge. So. Hmm. Yeah. Exactly. I'm trying, I'm trying to think if there's another layer to that, but uh, it's 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 right under my brain. But uh, yeah, it was just kind of. I guess that's what one of the, the gnomes get now. word of it. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, yeah. I, yeah, it's just I guess one of the things why this movie doesn't necessarily sit because now it's all about having the uh, princess with agency. Right. And Snow White has basically zero <laughs> yeah. agency. Like she's like, the. I mean, there's definitely agency. some some creepy undertones to this movie. If you if you rewatch it in 2022 vision um, with like. Yeah, this this prince coming and essentially uh, kissing a, a woman that's unconscious uh, without her uh, explicit consent. You know, she's friend zoned all the dwarves. Uh, although I guess, like you said, they're not actual human consciousness. I guess you can't. But I'm mean, like, if if we are to accept that the dwarves are at least in part human, hey, she could she could have a dwarf boyfriend <laughs> or seven or seven. Yeah. <laughs> She, yeah yeah she could have her own like reverse harem that'd be cool that, that... <laughs> <laughs> but um yeah it's just the fact that she doesn't have agency is kind of weird watching it now just because we have you know film now is um, is trying to do the opposite most of the time so well so so again if you if we bring this back to sort of the occult interpretation this is that suppression of the feminine energy and, and nature magic that you know, comes through the the dark ages and into the modern times is essentially just the story of patriarchy. You know, here we are in, in woke terms, but it li- quite literally is the patriarchy suppressing this feminine energy of nature and humanity trying to like instill its will through this kind of like Christian um, revolution across the world. So this can very easily be kind of reinterpreted as that same sort of dynamic and that the feminine energy is locked away in this ornate gold and glass um, encasing, which is like kind of uh, renders her sterile until this prince comes along, hears about her, comes along and injects his male energy, which in the movie, it's just like a little, you know, kiss on the, the lips, maybe like a little peck on the cheek and she comes back to life. But in, in occult symbolism, it's literally like, you know, the full penetration and um, male energy entwining with female energy and the reuniting of the two separated halves and bringing together the full whole again. And, and how else could you end this story, especially if it's about magic and nature, magic and humanity, um, if you don't reunite these two separated halves, and again, even at the very beginning of the movie, 
we see that male energy of the prince and Snow White, the feminine, and they immediately separate. You know, it's like oil and water, or like two, you know, um, opposing magnetic forces. He starts coming, she runs away. So the resolution has to be that that reuniting of the two energies towards the end. Right. Because my last note is, uh, should they live happily after after? Uh, should they live happily ever after they just met? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, as symbolism, of course, so they, they must come together. But uh, I'm like, they, you know, who knows what bizarre habits he has? He's a prince. <laughs> well, you know, in, in some of the original stories uh, from the brothers, because this particular story of Snow White and the Brothers Grimm, they republished their stories many, many times over the years, and it and it slightly changed here and there. And the Disney version, um, I think, is is very streamlined, and it's it's the one that everyone knows. But there's some versions where the gnomes were just like carrying her, and they accidentally drop her, and she hits her head, and that wakes her back up. And it doesn't even require the the prince to come in and do anything at all. Um, there's a, there's a whole there's some versions where she's literally dead and gets brought back to life. Um, but this Disney one makes the most sort of esoteric symbolic sense with the prince just coming and kissing her. And um, and it, it sort of be, has become like a prototype, right? Like this, like um, almost like the, the sleeping beauty aspect, like that is still a modern day archetype that people still relate to. And that was, I don't think arbitrary, but they but Disney had a lot of different variations they could have picked from. And this is the one they went with. The only glass coffin I can think of is Vladimir Lenin. <laughs> uh, well, they also do, I think, some popes. They, they usually stick some of the remains of the popes, um, you know, under the churches. They'll put them in, like, little glass. I don't know if, if you would call it a coffin, but it's like a, a little translucent, you know, uh, enclosure that you can, like, look through and, like, hey, Pope. <laughs> um, do you have any final thoughts you want to throw out on Snow White today? Because our, our time is running the the sands of time are running out uh just that i am outside of all the the mystical woo woo and and you know symbolism that you can read into it i'm absolutely floored that this came out in 1937 i mean if if my grandpa who isn't with us anymore but my grandpa was born in i think 1929 or something if he would have seen this when it came out he would have been 8 years old and to any eight-year-old that sees Snow White to the, for the first time, I feel like it is probably just as impressive as any other, you know, when, when my grandpa might have first seen it when he was eight versus your kid seeing it here 2022 when they're eight years old, um, it, it still would um, impress the same amount. It's just, it's amazing that the technological feat of the color and the animation and like even today we don't make cartoons that look as good as this because it would take so much time compared to you know the digital counterparts so out of out of anything at all so if you take away just the absolute technical feat and you know beauty that goes into this this animation of snow white it's it's hard to understate it yeah really even is. if it's even if it's That's boring cool. because you're watching her clean a house for <laughs> five or six minutes the artwork is phenomenal as she does it like just just every little bit of fluidity is is um beyond impressive and and yeah this is obviously a very impressive achievement i'm just my my contrast is just like wow they really did shore up all the story beats for you know dumbo and pinocchio because i feel like those films just don't drag so <laughs> and uh 
you know, this is the first, this is, I mean, there is no precedent for this except for maybe Gulliver's Travels. Was Gulliver's Travels before or after this? So I think it was a little bit before. That was you know. a good question. Although didn't Gulliver's, I, I might be talking out of turn here, but didn't Gulliver's Travels also have some combined like hybrid where it was like live action and animation uh, combined as opposed to just animation. I think they rotoscoped, uh, but there's also uh, not feature links, but there's a couple of those uh, Popeye cartoons that have model shots, which are really cool. Like uh, the, uh, is it Aladdin? Something like that, but they have Popeye going through the cave and the cave is actual film footage. And Oh, that was one of the very first Popeyes. Like, that might have been one of like the first three Popeyes. The, uh, the uh, Arabian Nights yeah, edition yeah, yeah. Where, where Pluto is essentially one of like the Arabian Night guys. Yeah, I know that has some footage, but yeah, I obviously I didn't uh, research Colors Travels coming in, just bopping it off the brain today. So, but yeah, just it's, I, I actually need to read a book I, that's on my iPad about this period of animation because it is fascinating because now it's like, oh, it looks old or it looks different. But it's like, no, everything is like innovative in the 20s and 30s with animation, basically. So it makes it quite an interesting period. Um, I, before I let you off, uh, tell the folks listening what you're up to, I guess, and where to find you. Oh, yeah, that's that's right. I have a whole <laughs> I do a bunch of stuff. So uh <laughs> So I'm Thomas Gorns of Paranoid American. You can check out paranoidamerican.com. I've got comic books and coloring books and all sorts of cool projects. And essentially what Paranoid American is, is we take conspiracy theories and occult research, like a lot of like the deeper stuff we've been talking about today. And I try to put that into comic books that break down the information in a way that does not take itself seriously at all. Lots of, you know, uh, silly jokes and, um, adult humor depending on which which uh, title that you go with so if you like what we've been talking about here today i highly recommend checking out the secret mystery school series and you can find that on amazon right now issues one and two with issues three and four to come soon this year so yeah check me out paranoidamerican.com and on instagram at paranoidamerican and you've been listening to oral hygiene it's oral hygiene pod on twitter and facebook and stuff and uh I do other podcasts. You can hear about the Twilight Zone on Time Enough Podcast. We do sci-fi movies at Matt and Luke's Sci-Fi Sanctuary. There's a couple of podcasts where they talk about video games, though I am not the gamer of the bunch. Uh, it's all under it's all on Patreon under the name Podcastio Podcastius. There, that's that's the spell, isn't it? Um, if you say it enough times, it is. Yeah. Yeah. Apparently a reference, it's, it, it sounds so Harry Potter, but uh, from the show Peep Show. So that's where the reference actually comes from. But uh, <laughs> I don't I don't know the show so well. The, uh, the other fellow named it, but I like the name. It's great. Okay. Well, I'm going to go find my prince, I guess. <laughs> All right, man. Good, good luck out there. Come. <laughs> you just got to knock yourself out and, and hope someone walks up to you on the street and gives you a little peck. Yeah, uh, the, there's an old lady across the street that really wanted to talk to me yesterday. And I was like, yeah, actually, I, I need to get back to work anyway. But I was like, I she start, really... starts handing out apples. Be wary. Yeah, uh, yeah, really. <laughs> Did you advance the film strip? Are you on the final page? Well done.